Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. We're in the second week of Advent, and uh, I hope that you've been able to set aside some time and some space in your life to prepare your heart for the joy of your salvation and for the wonder of what Christmas represents in our lives. This week we're in week two of the Advent series, and we're going to look at this word peace. If I were to ask you what the word sesquipedalian means, do you know what that word means? If you're actually in high school and you're close to SAT age, you probably actually know that word. But most of us have no idea what it means. Often, you can guess at the meaning of a word based on what its opposite is. So if I were to tell you that the opposite of sesquipedalian is concise, simple, to the point, then you could guess that the word sesquipedalian means something like long-winded or overly wordy or grandiose. And now maybe you're thinking, that Pastor Dave is a sesquipedalian preacher. So when you hear phrases in our culture like war and peace or peace and quiet, you get the idea that we think of peace largely as the absence of something, the absence of conflict or the absence of noise. But the Hebrew word for shalom, as the video so, uh, so well pointed out, this word peace in the Bible means much more than the absence of something negative. It also points to the presence of something good and powerful in the world. I think the video did a great job of describing shalom or peace as the presence of wholeness and harmony. It's when each person or being and all persons and beings live and work together in wholeness and harmony. When God originally created the Garden of Eden, it was a picture physically of perfect shalom. There was peace at every level. Adam and Eve were at peace within themselves, and they were at peace with one another. They were at peace with God. They were even at peace with the created world all around them. But the minute that they sinned, that peace that was the only thing they'd ever known instantly shattered. And it didn't just break the peace at one level, it broke that peace at every level where they had once enjoyed it. So there was a broken peace within themselves. When you look at Genesis 2, verse 25, it says that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This isn't primarily about nudity, but it has to do with the fact that they were totally exposed and visible, vulnerable, and yet they felt no shame. They were at peace with who they were, and they were at peace with how they were. In other words, they had no negative feelings about themselves at all. But the minute they sinned, look what Genesis 3-7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So they felt a shame instantly that they'd never experienced before. And the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines shame this way. It's a painful negative emotion caused by the consciousness of guilt or shortcoming or impropriety. In other words, they felt negatively about themselves and that feeling about themselves drove them to hide from one another's view. 
So the first place where that peace was broken was they no longer felt at peace within themselves. Then there was also a broken peace with one another. When you look at Genesis 3, 11 to 12, God says, hey, who told you that you were naked? And look at Adam's reply in verse 12. Well, and, and God challenges him, did you eat that fruit I told you not to eat? Look, look what Adam says in verse 12. The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. So from the very first sin, Adam throws his wife Eve under the bus, and he blames her for what he'd done. So the, the covering of their nakedness was the first sign that there was a division growing between them. That peace that they once enjoyed horizontally with each other was broken, but now it became even more direct. Adam directly blames Eve for the bad thing that he had done. And ever since that first time of blame casting, something that I call guiltriloquism, you know, ventriloquism is when you have a, a, a dummy on your hand and you make it seem like the dummy is talking when it's actually you. It's a throwing of your voice. And guiltriloquism is a throwing of guilt onto another person, a way of saying that in order to explain or excuse the wrong thing that I have done, I point to another fi- uh, my finger at another person and say it was their fault. They led me to do this. And ever since then, we human beings have been pointing the finger of blame at one another to, to bring light to what we've done. I think the casting of blame is at the heart or the root of almost all conflict between human beings. Later, when both their sons, Cain and Abel, made offerings to God, for whatever reason, and we're not exactly sure, because the Bible doesn't offer us details, but God accepts Abel's sacrifice or offering, and he rejects Cain's. And it doesn't tell us why he did it, but instead of searching his own heart to figure out why God rejected his offering, Cain turns his fierce anger towards his brother, and he blames his brother for the rejection that he felt. That's guiltriloquism. In Genesis 4, 6-7, to God directly challenges Cain's misplaced anger. He says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? God challenges Cain's anger towards his brother in the hope that he will check his own heart and own up to what he's done and and get some understanding and repent. Instead, Cain doubles down and he sets a trap and ends up murdering his brother. And this was not an act of passion. It was a cold, meditated, calculated crime. So the minute they sin, the peace that they once enjoyed with each other is broken, and it gets handed down to their next generation. It also broke the peace that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God. They used to walk about in the garden and hang out with God the way friends hang out with one another. But in Genesis 3, 11 to 12, you see the beginning of this rift already showing itself. Did you notice that even as Adam is throwing Eve under the bus, he not so subtly blames God as well. He says, it's not just Eve, but it's the woman you gave me. How quickly Eve goes from being Adam's wife to this woman that God put into his life. He once welcomed that gift of a partner, but now suddenly he's blaming God for putting this woman in his life. It's so easy to suppose we would be better people if God had given us better lives. 
This is something that has happened again and again ever since Adam first did this, is that we begin to blame God for the circumstances that drive us to the things we do. I'm not suggesting that sometimes hard, hard circumstances weaken us or make us more prone to do things that are wrong. But you see how the peace that we once enjoyed with God is broken through sin, and we begin to blame God for our sin rather than repenting of what we've done. And Eve was not guiltless either, because before she ate that forbidden fruit, she had to make a conscious decision to believe the seductive lies of the serpent, to believe that God was trying to withhold from her something good rather than protect her from something bad. In other words, she had to assassinate God's character, to mistrust Him, mischaracterize Him, question His motives and His goodness towards her before she could feel free to do the thing that she did in the end. So this shalom, this peace that Adam and Eve once enjoyed at every level in this garden paradise was instantly shattered and lost when they sinned in the garden. It is what the epic poem by John Milton called Paradise Lost is all about. The video did a good job of pointing out that Israel's kings were supposed to use their authority to promote shalom in society. Instead, they often abused that authority and they actually destroyed or broke shalom in their culture. As a result, God gave Israel's prophets really vivid visions of a king that one day would be sent. And this king would succeed where all the other kings of Israel had failed. He would not just be the king of Israel, he would be the king of all kings. And he would succeed where all other earthly kings had failed. Thousands of years later, I don't think our leaders are doing a much better job at promoting shalom in our world. It seems that human kings will never restore the shalom that was lost in Eden. The prophet Isaiah had particularly vivid visions about the coming Messiah. And in Isaiah 11, verses 4 and 6, here's what he says. He, speaking of the Messiah, will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And the little child will lead them all. These verses picture the full restoration of peace on the earth when Christ returns. This is what we've talked about, about heaven coming down to earth. But that full restoration, this vision so compelling, which God gives to Isaiah, is a picture of shalom restored, of Eden basically restored in some way. And that restoration would, of course, be finalized at the return of Christ, but it would begin on Christmas, at the birth of the Messiah. I'm not going to show the verses, but if you get time to read 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, those are very interesting verses. What it says is, prophets like Isaiah, who were given these visions, and, and picture it, if you had supernaturally seen a vivid image of something that is to come, a future picture of reality, think about how that would obsess you. It would obsess me for sure. And they longed to know exactly when these visions would come true. 
They poured their, their scriptures, they looked over everything, they were trying to figure it out. And it says in these verses in First Peter that even the angels, on the, having a front row seat to watching human history unfold, they couldn't wait to see when all this would happen. They saw the mess that the world was, and they longed for the day when this promised king would return to earth, and he would restore the peace that was so deeply broken. So in, in Luke 2, and, and this is such a familiar Christmas passage, we'll probably look at this more than once throughout the Advent series. Remember how that one angel had appeared to some shepherds, and he told them that this would be a sign, you will find a baby wrapped in a manger, and he is the Savior. As soon as he makes that announcement, it says, suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. You know, these angels who had been hidden from human view for so much of history, at at points God would send them, they would pop in and out, but for the most part, they would work behind the scenes and they were watching. And angels were not mindless robots, they were sentient beings, they are sentient beings, who with great interest observe what is happening on the earth. And they knew that the Messiah was coming. So you can see that at the, on the day of his birth, they could no longer contain themselves. They couldn't remain hidden anymore. And it was as if all of a sudden they just burst into the visible world. And imagine what the shepherds saw that night. A giant army of angelic beings. If one of them terrified these shepherds, can you imagine suddenly seeing thousands upon thousands of them filling the night sky and proclaiming with great joy. And what was the cause of all this joy? Because they had watched the mess that human history was for so many centuries, and they knew that on that night, the restoration of the broken and lost peace of all the world had come into the world. It was a cause for great joy because peace so desperately needed was finally coming to the world. You know, peace on earth is probably the most common phrase you'll see on Christmas cards. It's such a familiar Christmas phrase. I I just searched the web for some Christmas cards, and look how many I found that had peace on earth as a tagline on, on the front. But what does this familiar phrase, peace on earth, really mean? Well, I believe for us as Christ followers, what we mean by peace on earth, what those angels meant, was that at every level, that peace, the shalom of the world, had been broken in Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, when we sin, that peace would be restored at every level through Jesus Christ. If you look at Hebrews 9, verse 14, it's a picture of the restoration of peace with ourselves. It says, just think, how much more? The blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. When you feel dirty and you know that you are wrong, that you are guilty, it's really hard to freely worship God. But it says, finally, through the blood of Christ, not the blood of animals, but how much more the blood of Christ will take away the stain and the weight of our guilt so that we can finally be at peace within ourselves and be free to worship God. Do you see that? Jesus restores peace within ourselves, not just by teaching us to love ourselves more. That's the world answer. Hey, you're fine. Just love yourself more. Be better to yourself. But if we're honest people, we know that there are times when we cannot love ourselves more. 
But Jesus takes care of the root problem. He erases the shame that broke our peace with ourselves in the first place. If you look at Ephesians 2, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes, For Jesus, He Himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus also restores our broken peace with one another. He does it by forgiving us and then enabling us to forgive one another. There is no peace between people that is possible apart from Jesus Christ. Because sin is real and the consequences and the effects of sin are real. And you can't just make that go away through an apology or through restitution. Those things help, but they are not enough to build a bridge between broken humanity. But what Paul reveals to us is that Jesus Christ Himself, He didn't just purchase our peace, He didn't teach us about peace, He Himself was our peace. Through His sacrifice, He opens a way for us to actually break down the dividing wall because that sin which divides us has to be dealt with and only He could actually deal with that sin. If you look at Romans 5.1, we also see that Jesus restores our peace with God. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. We so often think about us needing to feel right with God, but it's more important that God feels right with us. We have to be made right in God's sight because God is holy and we are not. We have a broken peace with God, and we are the ones who broke that peace. And what Jesus offers us is a way to cover that offense so that the peace that is broken between us and God can actually be restored. Let me bring it to a close this way. The world isn't at all the way it's supposed to be. One of the most helpful books I ever read about the topic of sin was by a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga. And he, or I think it was actually Alvin Plantinga. I I always get the two confused. But it was called, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And that is such a great phrase to describe what sin is and what it has done to the shalom peace which God designed the world to have. The world isn't at all the way it's supposed to be. It's a huge mess, and we all know it. I don't have to convince you of this. Just look at your own life right now, and you'll find some place in your life that is not at all how things are supposed to be. But here's the good news of Christmas, is that the peace that was broken in Eden can now be restored through Jesus Christ. It can be restored at every level. The barrier, though, is that there are a lot of counterfeit forms of peace that keep us from seeking real peace. These counterfeit forms of peace so often take two main forms. They take on the form of apathy, where we just feel less and less. We numb ourselves. Or they take the form of appeasement, where we try to please someone else and mistake that for peace. So you can see why those seem like peace. When you don't feel anything, you could say, well, I feel fine. You don't feel fine, you just feel nothing. That's not the same as peace, but it can keep you from seeking real peace. And appeasement's the same way. 
You can try slavishly to give somebody everything they want and think that 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 purchased acceptance is the same as peace. When we try to do this, we can develop a counterfeit peace with ourselves where the path of apathy is we just ignore how we're actually feeling. We ignore what's exactly happening within us or we just distract ourselves by giving, giving myself everything I want. And I figure if I make myself happy, that's the same as being at peace. But it's not. We can develop a counterfeit peace with one another. Where we just numb our hearts, we just turn, our, turn it off and go, I feel nothing towards you. I, have, I expect nothing. I'm not hurt by you. I'm not excited by you. You are just dead to me. And that's the only way to protect my heart. And some people live that way in relationship where they stop feeling. They try to numb themselves and think that that's peace between us. But it's not. Because our hearts yearn for something more than that. Or maybe you fall into the trap of a counterfeit peace with someone else by slavishly giving them whatever will please them. If I just give you what you want, then maybe you'll accept me. But that is not the kind of peace that God wants between us. It's a counterfeit. We could even develop a counterfeit peace with God. Paying no attention to the condition of our souls. Saying, you know what, as far as I know, I think I'm fine spiritually. I'm fine. Not really understanding that there is a deep rift between you and God. You just don't know it because you haven't paid attention to it. Numbness spiritually is not the same as peace with God. Or maybe you take the other path and you're trying to buy God's acceptance through sacrifice and service. Trying by the things you give Him to get His approval when He wants to just give it to you as, as a gift of grace. Do you see why if you've taken these counterfeit forms of peace, you will never seek the real peace that Jesus makes possible? The peace of God is a great gift and it's richly available to each one of us in Jesus Christ. I challenge you this Advent to be thoughtful about this, to locate the places in your life where the peace that God wants for you is broken. Maybe for you, you don't have peace within yourself. Maybe it's a deep rift with another person, a conflict. Or maybe more than you realize, you have a broken peace with God. Locate the places where the peace is broken in your life. I invite you to turn to Jesus, not trust in any counterfeit peace, but turn to Jesus and ask Him to restore the broken peace in your life. Begin that process now in this life. He will complete it in the life to come. Let's close our time of worship with a song together. And as we sing, I encourage you to be very thoughtful and prayerful about what we're singing. If you need to just pray, you can do that as well. And when we're done with that song, I'm going to come back and dismiss us with a a word of blessing. But I really want to invite you not to just tune out at this point in the service, but this is the most important moment in most services, is where you've heard and seen and sung, but now it's time for you to respond from your soul to what God is trying to say to you. To lay open your life before Him and invite Him in and change and grow. Would you do that as we wrap up our service today? Very few of us need convincing that peace is broken in our lives, that the world is not at all the way it's supposed to be. But the good news, especially at Christmas time, 
is that with the arrival of Jesus Christ into the world, the peace that was broken in Eden can now be restored through Him. Each one of us, I'm sure, needs more peace. And it's possible as a free gift to us through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Can I invite you now and bless you to stop ignoring the broken peace, stop trusting in counterfeits, and turn to Jesus and seek the real, complete, shalom peace that God wants for your life. May this be His gift to you, a gift you openly receive in faith. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.